August 4th, 2013, lecture discussion number 119 on the book of Romans. And here we are again, once more, at Psalm 22. I've done a lot of Psalm 22. I've never done it to this group, I don't believe, the way I'm going to do it today. I'll have to ask the people that have been with me for all these years if I've ever done this. I've kind of deliberately stayed away from it because of a conversation I had many, many years ago with a theologian who looked at me and said, you need to spend more time on that. It scared me a little. But after the end of our discussion, he looked at me again and said, you know what, I can't defeat your argument. So that encouraged me. And I haven't really ever done it, but I'm going to do it again today. I've done it in other places, but again, I'm not sure I've done it at this at Cliffside ever. I've only been here, what, 16 years. So anyway... We got to this place, Psalm 22-1, because of 2 Kings chapter 1, and a very important 2 Kings 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2. That is where I have this typology of Elijah, and these three captains of 50 men come to him, and, and I also have Elisha, and uh, there's 42 uh, slain soldiers that are killed by two female bears. That is a type, those are true events that actually happened, but they are portraits of something that Christ is going to do. There's something that Christ did. So actual events, real people, there really were three captains, there really were 150 men, there really were 42 soldiers, uh, and all of them came up uh, at some point in, in front of Elijah and Elisha. And actually, to be more specific, there's this mocking of Elisha and Elijah. I got that reversed. They say to Elijah to come down now or come down quickly. I left out the down, so I'll stick it in here. Come down quickly to Elisha, they say. Go up, you bald head. Now, both of those, bald head, as you might remember, is a leprosy. Reference. Those are mocking statements made by these soldiers that have come from the king uh, specifically to kill both of these prophets. Uh, and they say these mocking, ridiculing things to these two prophets of God, or man of God, they would call themselves. And because, as always, whenever we have an Old Testament issue, we can't really understand why they say these things and why this all happened and what what is it about, we have to go to the New Testament and find the New Testament complement. So we have to go and find, come down quickly and go up, you bald head. They have to be in the New Testament somewhere, and, and it's critically important that you do that. If you don't do it, you'll, you'll be lost. The Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, if you cannot find how the New Testament and the Old Testament fit together, and this is a great mystery, but very few people have solved, come down quickly and go up, you bald head. They can't find it in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, it's easy to find, in my view. And when you find it, then both sides make sense. The primary function, the fundamental purpose, the role of the Old Testament is to teach you what Christ is doing in the New Testament. If you don't know that, you'll be completely, totally lost uh, all the time. It, it, it teaches you who He really is. And hardly anybody knows who Christ really is today. It's a truth that's barely known. I had a lady call me up the other day. She called the church office. And I answered the phone, which I hardly ever do. Because I don't know who it is. And she worked for uh, um, what's called the Church of Anchorage. I shouldn't say that about them. But uh, now it's in the Internet and it's gone forever. And and I asked her immediately. I said, uh, who is Jesus Christ? Got a little bit of a pause. And she said, the Son of God. That's okay, as long as you know what the Son of God means. I didn't think she knew. So I asked her more questions. I asked her, is Jesus Christ inferior to God in any way? A little bit of a pause. No. Yay. You get to go on with the conversation. 
But if I had kept pressing her, I promise you, her understanding of who, the, who Christ really is, is, is very shallow and not strong enough to get her through understanding her own Bible. Can't say it enough. Jesus Christ is creator God himself. He's the invisible spiritual Godhead. He's the second person of the Godhead made visible. He puts on the physical body, if you will. Uh, and here's a place where I, can, I can't say her name, but Janine got a, a very quick lecture on substance dualism when she walked in the door. Why do I do it? And here Bill comes up. We, we didn't conspire, Janine. Uh, but we talk about, as you know, substance dualism all the time, wave particle dualism. That, that's the experiment that Bill was referring to. We're constantly talking about it because we recognize that there is a physical reality and a spiritual reality, and the physical reality isn't really a reality. First day of philosophy class, the professor will tell you there is no physical reality. Everything is a spiritual reality, ultimately. That's by the way, God says that clearly to us. Worship me spiritually. Understand the spiritual reality. And our job is to do that. We have to know who he really is. We have to know that he is, he is God himself in the flesh who has added physical reality so that we can see him. Because we think seeing is really important. And we have to know who he is, how he thinks, what he says, what his character is like, what his plan of salvation is, and all of that is in the Old Testament, John 5.39. And our job is to go through the Old Testament, find, him, find Christ on every page, and then, then start searching through the New Testament, as soon as we've done that, to find the fulfillment of those Old Testament passages. And that's how we get to Psalm 22.1. What is Psalm 1? That's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have, I doubt in my lifetime I've met five people that can explain that. It's in every movie, every Ishtar, Easter for those of you who don't know that. It's a Babylonian word. There is no Easter in the Bible, as you know. There's first fruits. But in every Ishtar, every movie, every TV show, there's a recent one that just came out, totally, completely, corrupted, corruptedly wrong. They do not understand Psalm 22.1. And that's what we're doing today, and that's how we get there. We get to Psalm 22.1 today, I'm going to do Matthew 27, 38 through 46. And we get to Psalm 22.1 because of 2 Kings 1 and 2. And Second Kings chapter 2, I'm sorry, Second Kings chapter 1, Second Kings chapter 2, said those two lead us to Matthew 27, 38 through 46. So, I go to Second Kings 1 and 2, that gets me to Matthew 27, 38 through 46, because that is the New Testament complement, and then that helps me understand why God, on the cross, says, myself, myself, why have I forsaken myself? I kind of twisted that a bit, but you get the point. So, that culminates, Matthew 27, with Jesus Christ quoting this verse. The good news is, is that we've so far found the connection between Elisha's statement to the two captains of 50 that had come to kill him. He says this, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Happened twice. Two, two captains came up to kill him, and he says that to both of them. If I am a man of God, if I am the prophet, Elijah, then fire will come down and consume you. And fire came down and consumed. The third captain, he, he saw the first two fires, as you, as you know, if you've been here. And he immediately said, I give up. Have mercy on me, smartest man in the whole Old Testament. So, but with that statement that Elisha made, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And then Elisha, when 42 soldiers came to kill him, he pronounces a curse on them and they're killed by two female bears. We have found that connection and we have connected it to Christ saying, Psalm 22.1. So if I had to put a math question out there, a math, 
Second uh, Kings one and Second Kings two, or equals Second Kings two, which it does, equals Psalm twenty two one. By the way, Jesus Christ is standing next to Elijah when Elisha curses the captains. When Elisha said, if I am a man of God, let fire come down. Jesus Christ is standing right next to him. That's 2 Kings 1.3 and 2 Kings, or 2 Kings 1.15. Jesus Christ is the one that consumes them with fire. He's the one that executes them, if you will. That's him standing there. Elisha doesn't do it. Christ does it. Makes it very clear. And that raises the obvious question then. That statement of Elijah, if I am a man of God, let fire come down. Did Elisha think of those words? Or did he just take the note from Christ and read it? I submit that it's uh, certain that uh, those words that he said are Jesus Christ's words given to Elijah to say. And I'm going to tell you also, as are the words of Elisha when he curses the 42 soldiers who have hunted him down. Christ chooses his words perfectly. He can't help it. He's omniscient God, right? Anyway, that's how we get to where we are, Matthew 27, uh, 38 through 46. And, and there we're confronted with the why. Why does Jesus Christ quote Psalm 22:1 during his crucifixion, essentially at the end of his crucifixion? And as most everyone is aware, I don't think there's a commentary, a scholar, a Bible school, a seminary, a church. You pick. I don't think there's one that's willing to take on why he said that. They know that what they're teaching is very dubious. I don't want to get into the rest of it. It's almost radioactive. And they all cling to, cling to this anthropomorphic interpretation. Instead of Christ-centric, they have anthropomorphic. And what I mean by that is that if it's Christ-centric, then the reason he says it is because he's God. They don't ever say that. They say the reason he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is because why? He's scared. He's worried. He's unhappy. He's sad for himself. He's weak. Who is he again? He's creator God himself. He's omnipotent. He has all the power. He's outside of time. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Is he worried about anything? Makes no sense. That's called the anthropomorphic view. What we like to do is, is, what's the word I want? Say it with me. As stupid people, what we like to do is project our weaknesses onto Christ. And it is wrong to do so. But that's what we do. Every church in, that I've ever been to does this at Psalm 20, or Matthew 27, 38 through 46, Psalm 22, 1. Of all of the Old Testament verses that Jesus Christ could have chosen, the, he's the I Am, he's the Lord God Almighty, the, again, the second person of the triune Godhead, he selects with his omniscience, he selects out 22.1 of Psalms as his response to the Pharisees and the scribes and the political class elders, the thieves that are next to him, around him, while he is up in the air and they are down below and they are mocking him. It is identical to the come down quickly and go up you bald head scenarios of Elijah in 2 Kings 1 and 2 and Elisha. It's the same pattern. Everything's the same. It's... Uh, so, but his response is not fire and death. Elijah says, uh, if I am the man of God, fire will come down. That's how Elijah responds. Christ through Elijah. Uh, Elisha responds with a curse and two bears come out, female bears, and I covered that all for John. Just because John wanted to know why two female bears. I solved why two female bears. John, are you happy about that? I actually answered the question, didn't I? Now, if you don't know why there's two female bears, go ask John. They don't have time to do it, because the question becomes, why not male bears, right? Why not tigers or lions? Why Why two? Well, there's very good reasons for that, and John knows all of them now. 
Welcome back. But again, the response to the mocking of Elijah is fire. The response to the mocking of Elijah is the slaughter of all 42 men. And now I have men, elders, scribes, Pharisees, thieves, the people of, of Israel mocking Christ, and his response is Psalm 22.1. Does that make sense? I have another equation. Fire equals bears equals Psalm 22.1. Once you got that, if you get fire equals bears equals Psalm 22.1, you're going to be unshakable. That's why I'm talking to you three girls now. You will be unshakable. You will never fall for another... I can't say crap. You'll never fall for another one of these sermons the rest of your lives. None of you will. Because you'll know fire equals bears equals Psalm 22.1. I have to be aware of that. Ben edits that out now, so you're the only ones that know it's funny. Was it you that told me, Becky, that I can't say it because of Australia or something? Oh, it's Bill. Okay. So we now edit that out, those of you who are worried. Don't worry. Ben takes care of me. But this nonsense that passes itself off today as scholarship concerning Matthew 27 Psalm 22.1, that's going to bounce off of you. No more will you have a low value of Christ. What I mean by that is that you will not have the anthropomorphic view. You will have the high view of Christ. If you ever find yourself in a position where you're believing something that makes Christ look bad, what's the problem that you have? You're wrong. Get rid of it. That's you projecting yourself, your weakness, or your humanity onto him. He doesn't have our humanity in the sense. He has perfect humanity. We have sinful humanity. There's a vast difference. But if you understand that fire equals bears equals 22-1 psalm, you will not, you will, that stuff will bounce off of you. And again, it's very rare that I find someone who doesn't uh, have the anthropomorphic view or the wrong view of what is taught about uh, Psalm 22.1. And that's a great tragedy because the view can't stand up. How long do you think, and I'm no great arguer, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good, but I'm not great. I've argued this thousands of times. It takes me five, five, 15 seconds sometimes to destroy the anthropomorphic view. That's the common view. It can't stand examination. It can't withstand scrutiny. It can't bear up even against the simplest questions. It's easily destroyed by basic fundamentals. As you're going to see, I'm going to do it again. It isn't true. That's why it crumbles so fast. And I'm really sorry if you believe it, if it makes you feel good. No, I'm not really sorry. That's a fake sorry, as you know. Okay, so let's start by figuring it out. Let's read the necessary passages. Uh, Matthew 27, 38 through 45. And it's good for you to read it, so go ahead, dutifully pretend that you're paying attention. And turn there. And I will read it. But you should read it, too, because there's lots of cool things hidden here. That's something that's very important for you to know. God likes to hide things from you. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Why does God hide things from us? To force you to find them. Because the finding process is healthy for you. Okay. So here we go. Matthew 27, 38 through 45. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and another on the left. I have a note right here that I wrote in my Bible probably, I don't know how many years ago. See 1 Kings 1 and 2. As soon as I saw that, I said, oh, see 1 Kings 1 and 2. And those who passed by blasphemed him. Whoa. Blasphemed. So, 
That's an incredibly important word. Then two, waters were cru- two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Save yourself. Now you know the definition of blaspheme. We'll get into it a little bit more. If you are the Son of God, come down from the Christ or cross. Sorry. If you are the Son of, Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocked. So again, start thinking about First, Second uh, Kings one and two. Did I say First Kings one and two? I see here that I did, I wrote it that way years ago. Just fixed it. You can't catch me. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, notice those ifs, if, if. Let me back up. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the, with the scribes and elders said, He saved himself, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down. So there again, I got to come down again. That's takes you right to 2 Kings 1 and 2. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Okay? That's not all of the elements because they got to move fast. But notice the blaspheming him and the wagging their heads and the coming down, come down. And they say, they admit, hey, he saved others. What do they mean by that? I explained that a couple of weeks ago. He healed leprosy. Nobody had ever healed that kind of leprosy in the history of the world until he did it. Other than Naam and the Syrian and Elisha. He also grew limbs out of people. He took the ward amputees, the men who had their arms cut off, their ears cut off, their tongues cut out, and their eyes gouged out. They were sent back to Israel by the Syrians or whatever, whoever they were fighting at that particular time, even though the Romans were there. All of those men were all over the war, wounded, if you will, and his way of taking care of them is that he grew limbs for them. That's not happening at the... Uh, Healing me. We're not getting new eyes. We're not getting new hands, faces, and ears. We're getting healed of back pain. Foot of dandruff. Nobody's growing limbs. They all knew that he had what he had done. He healed the ones that were the most unhealable. And no one can deal with. He dealt with all of them by the thousands. They admitted he saved others. Not only did he heal people, he did what else? He resurrected dead people. And they knew that. They admit here that he did it. They hate him. This is like getting an endorsement. From your absolute most vile enemy. Himself he cannot save. Save yourself. Himself he cannot save. Come down. If you come down, then we're going to believe you. And then they also say, God won't have him. He's a sinful man. And even the robbers reviled him. Now, it goes on. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. So, immediately after we have this going on, we have darkness, right? And then Jesus Christ uh, cried out in a loud voice. Oh, that's very important, that loud voice. What's the obvious question to the physicist? My trumpet teacher, bless his heart, gave me really good advice uh, last trumpet lesson. He said, Get your tongue out of the way. That's your problem. I said, well, I have lots of problems. And he said, he said, this, you're a physicist, or you claim to be, you think you are, you act like one, and you certainly know the topic. 
You're playing a piece of pipe. How hard is it to play a piece of pipe? Well, for me, it's very hard. But the problem I have now is my tongue's in the way. But I can make a really loud noise with the trumpet. It just isn't pleasant. And that's a very important thing to know. How loud is loud? How pleasant was it? How did they respond to what he says? And this is what he says. This is God himself on the cross. And he says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22.1. Again, of all the verses he could say, while he's being mocked, after the darkness, that's what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, notice Psalm 22.1 comes after the darkness. It should be obvious that, uh, that now that we have to understand the purpose of the darkness. Why the darkness? What does God mean when he uses darkness? Why did he turn the lights out? Let's go back. They're screaming all this stuff at him. Turns the lights out. Waits three hours. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does not say my father, my father. And says it what? Aloud. Very loud voice. And he says it aloud. Does he need to speak aloud? Does the triune Godhead need to communicate so that we can hear them? So if it's said aloud, what does that mean? But anyway, why does God turn the lights out, if you will? What does the darkness symbolize? And who is the recipient of the darkness? In other words, who is given the darkness? Why is the darkness given? You'll hear all kinds of stuff here. You'll hear that God put it all in darkness because he couldn't stand to look upon God. They don't say it that way, but here's how they say it. God the Father couldn't stand to look upon God the Son because God the Son was taking on the sins of the world. And God the Father couldn't look at him. Too painful. So God turned his back, and that's why we have darkness. What they say. Now, it, I hope you can see it's ridiculous. If God can't look upon sin, then what are the chances that he's looking at us? That's not good news. And by the way, he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at all times. So if he can't deal with sin, has to turn his back. A whole heap amount of trouble we're in. It's senseless. Can't be defended. So again, who is the recipient of the darkness? Who is given the darkness and why? Uh, once you got that, you're going to go to the plague of darkness, the ninth plague, uh, Exodus 11, 21 through 23. You're going to go to the sixth seal in Revelation 6, 12. You're going to go to Revelation 16, 10, and 11, the fifth bowl. You're going to look at uh, uh, the darkness that hits the Antichrist over his kingdom. And you're going to look at all the darknesses. But for today, ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. What is the impact of darkness on Christ? Who is he? He calls himself something. What does he call himself? Lots of things. He calls himself light. I am the light of the world. So I have this wonderful little picture now. I have darkness and I have the light of the world. So I want to know, what's the impact of the darkness on the light of the world? Let me put it another way. Jesus Christ, who is in total and complete authority of his own crucifixion, is doing everything that he wants to do, and no one can stop him from doing it because he's omnipotent God himself. Is Jesus Christ affected by darkness? Did the darkness affect him? Is he afraid of the dark? He can't be afraid. He's omniscient, right? Can the darkness overcome the light? No. Or does the light overcome the darkness? Is this a fair fight? No. I have light. I have darkness. The darkness cannot overcome the light. 
See Revelation 19, Matthew 4. Now, consider the meaning and the timing of the darkness following the blasphemy. Because God calls it blasphemy to do these things that they're doing. That's a very strong term. The blasphemy, the mocking, the come down, the, the save yourself and all the ifs. Ask another basic, simple question, or a few of them. How did the Pharaoh respond to the night plague darkness? How does the Antichrist and his uh, army, if you will, respond to the fifth bowl darkness? How did the Pharisee and all of the people that were with the Pharisees at, at Christ, you know, the elders, the scribes, the political leaders, how did they respond to the three hours of darkness? What happened when it got dark? We're, just think of it this way. i got a bunch of people screaming and yelling, Save yourself and, and all the mocking and the ifs and he can't, he saved, he healed a whole bunch of other people but he can't even come down off a cross. If you come down off the cross, we'll go ahead and believe in you, which is a crock, right? All that's going on and bang, the lights go off, I got utter blackness. What happened? As soon as he turned the lights off, what happened? They shut up. So obviously the darkness makes it really quiet. Have you ever been in that kind of darkness? I have been. Rooms with no windows, uh, concrete rooms, lights go out, you see nothing. And after the screaming of the eighth grade girls goes down, there is quiet. And you hear things you never thought you could hear. becomes obvious who the darkness is for, doesn't it? He shuts them up. No one repents when the darkness comes. Again, look at what happens to the men of the earth at the sixth seal. People continue to blaspheme and they, can, and they pull, they hide in caves, they do everything. But they do not repent. And, and I think... Uh, uh, the response of the Pharisees uh, at the crucifixion is the same as the response to all the others with regard to darkness when God sends it. And I think that's proven by the fact that Christ uh, uh, quotes Psalm 20, 22, 1. The light of the world quotes Psalm 22, 1. I should inject, by the way, really fast, the Roman executioners, uh, their detail. That's a little squad of men that has executed thousands of people. And they are executing this person, and it's not going the way they thought. He makes them march up a hill. They have all kinds of problems. They didn't get to, he didn't, he was unaffected by the beating. He's unaffected by all of it. Because he's God. I make it, I made the point the other day, he's using the cross beam as a pointer. The same way I'm using the, the dry erase marker. That's my view. Uh, it will prevail against your view that God couldn't carry a stick. If you have that view, get rid of it. Anyway, those Roman executioners, they'd never seen anything like this, and they say so. And they figure out the meaning of the darkness really fast. They know what it is, and they know why it came. And they know who it's for. And that's a key to understanding all of this. As you are aware, I concluded a long time ago, and, I, and again, I think it is the only uh, defensible position. Uh, the Roman soldiers assigned to this crucifixion were all saved. Every single one of them. Every single Roman soldier saved. They're the them. What I mean by that, Christ says, Father, forgive them. They're the them. When God says, forgive them, and you're the them, how's your day going? You're in really good shape. So whoever is the them got saved. I can do process of elimination. I have saved people there. I have apostate Jews there. Saved Jews, apostate Jews, unsaved Romans. The Jews knew what they were doing. The Romans are executioners. They're doing their job. They get a paycheck. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know what they're doing. They're trying to crucify God. How does it go for them? A total train wreck for them. And they got forgiven. Yay. 
Go study your Roman history. You'll find out that Christianity swept through the entire Roman army. They did an amazing thing. And i got a feeling I know who started it. That saying of Christ was directed to the Roman squad. Like I said, good news to be forgiven. Christ being omniscient God knew that they were believers at the end of this process. So, next obvious, simple, basic question. If Father forgive them is going to the Romans, to whom was my God, my God, why have you forsaken me directed to? Obviously, it's not directed to the Father. Because again, he says it aloud. And it's not directed to himself or about himself. It's a question. Why have you forsaken me? Who is he? Do you ask God a question? Not if you know he's omniscient. Who gets questions asked to them? The omniscient ones or the non-omniscient ones? It's, it's silly to ask a question to somebody who is omniscient. Think it through logically. We'll get to it in a minute. It's certain that if it isn't to the Romans... I don't believe it is to the saved Jews that were there. I think it is certainly for the Pharisees and all of those guys, scribes, elders. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. We've got to define blasphemy a little better, so let's go do that in case there's any confusion. Now we'll go to Luke. Luke adds some really important things. Uh, what you do when you're answering one of these kinds of questions is you just go around and you find all the places where the question is and you put all the pieces together. It's like building a house. You have to have all the parts accumulated. 2335 through 49. It's a lot. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Again, they admit that he saved others. It's amazing they admitted that. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, the soldiers also mock. So i got this mocking going on. Same thing in 2 Kings, right? Coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him. Aha! Now we're going to get the definition of blaspheme. Blaspheme means to loathe, to hate, to insult God. Saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other thief answered, rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? In other words, you're about to die. Don't you think you ought to shut up? Because the next place you're going to go is where? Throne room of God. I'm going to take a different route. Just saying. It's what he does. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. That again, is another extraordinary statement by this guy. Then he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me. When he says, remember me, he is saying, you are the one who remembers. You remember. You're the rememberer. It's all the way back to Genesis. God is the rememberer. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. So there's that darkness. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, that's really cool. I have my God, and side by side I have Father. Father, commit. By the way, I commit, and here is a question, why have you? Notice the difference between the two statements. It's profound. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the Roman centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God. How's he doing? He's being the them. Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. So they beat their breasts and they returned. What's the obvious question? Where did they go? Return to where? Here's a great word. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Okay? So right off the bat, we have this wonderful definition of blasphemy. Notice again, the let him save himself, the mocking, the if you are the king of the Jews, the save yourself. All of that's still here. All of that's shown as... Uh, uh, Verified by Luke as well. And immediately connect that, the ifs, to Elijah. If I am a man of God. And remember, Elijah's words were given to him by Christ, who was standing right next to him. But again, the key to this is verse 39. Then one of the criminals blasphemed him. And we're being told that blasphemy is coming. What comes next is blasphemy. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. God says that's hatred, loathing, contempt, evil, wickedness. There it is. Hatred for God and his sacred things. Great evil and wickedness. Now, some will insist that only part of this statement by the thief is blasphemy. And we call those people who say that wrong. All of that statement is blasphemy. It has three parts to it. It has the if part. Start paying attention to all the ifs. It has the save yourself part. And it has the save us part. Three parts. The whole thing, blasphemy, wicked. And the second thief says, hey, what are you thinking? Why would you say such? such You're you're about to die here. And and why are you you doing it? I'm not doing it. I'm going to just go for it. I think you're the rememberer. That means you're God. Save me, please. Worked out pretty good. Because I'm worried about the time here, I'm, I'm going to start with number two, the save yourself. If I'm unable to address one and three this week, I'll clean them up next week. I thought I'd get this all done today, and then as I'm writing it, it just kept, keeps on going. So we'll do the best we can. We might have to save some for next week. But for today, it is loathing hatred to say to God, save yourself. Ask why. It is wickedness to demand that God save himself. Notice, however, who's doing it. How many people are doing it? Probably a couple of thousand people are screaming at God, save yourself. They don't think he's God. They're certainly hoping he's not. By the way, if he did come down off the cross, what does that mean? Judgment. So there even there's the, the ignorance here is astonishing, but everyone is yelling at him constantly. Let him save himself. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And even one of the two hanging with him, one of the thieves, as the thief is dying ten feet away from Creator God. By the way, nobody ever died in the presence of God. The thief doesn't die until God is gone. When I say God, the person. Again, the body is the machine. The person is the spirit. You are never called your body. You are always called your spirit. God calls you, the person, the spirit. Never calls you, your personhood, the body. But I got a thief, just as he's dying, yells out, save yourself if you're God. Ten feet away. But no one ever died with Christ there. When Christ is gone, death. 
Now, the obvious question should be, whooping you upside the head now? Why are they screaming at God to save himself? What is This is great mocking. They are so happy about this. Can't stop them from doing it. They're all doing it. Thousands of them. What's their purpose? Why did the thief say it? What's just like that one on? Why did the thief say the same thing that the Pharisees and the elders are saying? Why did he do it? He's about to die. The other thief goes, what, are you crazy? So why did he scream it? He screamed it for the obvious reason, right? You've got a crowd screaming it. He screams it too. What's he hoping to get? There. He wants to align himself with the screamers. What's the value in that? I'm going to be like you guys. Second thief says, I, I, I ain't going to do that. I'm going to go a different road here. Why is it hatred contemptuous to scream, save yourself at God? And, and again, God lets them yell for a while, and then he turns out the light, and the light goes. Poof, gone. And the screamers are in total blackness for three hours. And then God says, Father, forgive them. I'm sorry. Then God says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a very loud voice. And I submit his voice was deafening. I think it was so loud, it's astonishingly loud. And um, it it resulted in great fear and trembling for all who heard it. And that was probably the entire creation. As you know, that is the view of the Jews with regard to Exodus 19.16, when God is coming down uh, to his people Israel and the trumpet goes off. And again... Who heard it? Maybe the entire world, but that's not everybody, right? We always forget who's watching these things. Besides the Jews, and besides the saved Jews, and besides the Romans, and whoever else was standing around, who else heard that sound, that voice? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then later on, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who else heard that? Well, obviously the angelic spiritual world heard. So what's the obvious question? I got two statements by by God on the cross here. And they're proclamations, the pronouncements. And the angelic host heard the two things and and as they always do, they heard everything he said, both sides heard. And they would wonder to whom are the two loud proclamations being directed to? To the unfallen angels or to the fallen angels, to the humanity, to the Pharisees to the followers at a distance, I got four four choices. The Romans, I got five. But I take out the Romans because they're the them. Father, forgive them. So I got two statements. Who's it for? Which one? My my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Who's that for? Father, into your hands I assign, I deliver. Notice that. I send, I entrust my spirit. That's what he said. Who's that for? The second statement is amazing, by the way. Father, into your hands I assign, deliver, send, and trust my spirit. I add all of that so you understand what commit means. That's an amazing statement. Jesus Christ has the power, the authority, the ability, the necessary characteristics to separate himself from his body at will and to assign his spirit to the Father. Who has that authority? The angelic knew that this was for them to hear. The Father, into your hands I assign, deliver, send, and trust my spirit. They're in the spiritual realm. They knew. I believe they knew that this was primarily directed to them. And that Psalm 22.1 was for the Jews assembled screaming, save yourself. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was being said to in a very loud voice to the Jews who are screaming, save yourself. That's his answer to the mocking. That's why he says it. Of all the verses that are in the Bible, the absolute perfect one to, to respond to mocking, save yourself. Come down from the cross. If you are God, the perfect one to answer that with 
is Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now granted, everyone heard every, everything and everyone could discover great truths in both statements. But primarily, Psalm 22 was for the Pharisees and their ilk. And Christ always rebukes and warns the Pharisees and their followers. This time, Psalm 22.1 goes to the next level. What I call the two bears level. It's, the, it's a curse this time. This becomes the answer to the question of Luke 23.48. Why they beat their breasts. Because they immediately understood that Psalm 22.1 was not good. Not good for them. And notice that the father or the followers of Christ, they stood at a distance and they're contrasted with the ones who beat themselves in return. Again, I can't get off track, but I just want to get it out there so you begin to search through it. Why is save yourself when directed to Christ hatred, loathing, contempt, blasphemy? To that matter, why is save yourself directed to anyone else? To say save yourself to anyone is foolishness. But to say it to Christ is blasphemy. It's impossible. It's impossible for Christ to save himself. Why? He needs no salvation. He's never in a position where he has to have salvation. He is salvation. So if you're saying to him, save yourself, you have just uttered the most profoundly ignorant thing you can. And if you do it willingly, knowingly, then it's blasphemy, hatred, loathing, contempt. It's impossible because Jesus Christ, it's impossible for Jesus Christ to save himself because it's impossible that Jesus Christ, omnipotent God, can ever be in a position where he's vulnerable. He can never be vulnerable. He's omnipotent. He can't ever be in a place where he can be saved. It's impossible. Who has to be saved? Raise your hand. Us. We're idiots. Can we save ourselves? No. We can't save ourselves. So it's just as foolish to say, Steve, save yourself. Well, it's not as foolish. But it's profoundly foolish to save to God. Save yourself. Because I'm saying something about his character. When you say to me, Steve, save yourself, you're just dumb. When you say to Christ, save yourself, you're hateful. You're not saying anything about my character. You're just doctrinally unsound. Well, you're doctrinally unsound in both cases. But you think a human being can save himself. He can't. He needs an outside force. The outside force is Christ. Vulnerability cannot coexist with omnipotence. The characteristics of omnipotence eliminates the possibility of vulnerability. They're inconsistent. They're opposites. By the way, the power to say, Father, into your hands, I send my spirit, that requires omnipotence. Only an omnipotent person could say that and, and be certain that it's done. And another, by the way, it's also impossible for anyone who has vulnerability to save themselves. I've got to get that in twice or three times. We don't have any power. No one has any power. If somebody comes up to you and says, come to my church, I will save you, what should you do? Run. Certainly don't give them money. If somebody comes to you and says, I can save you, reach for your money. And hope you beat him or her to it. Because they're fast. They're quick. They're in the business of separating dumb people from their money. It happens all the time. Look, you have to come to my church. If you don't come to my church, you won't be saved. What's that? Nonsense. That's somebody that's driving a really nice car says that kind of nonsense. For those who want to know this stuff, it's the doctrine of impeccability. If you want to research the doctrine of impeccability. Christ is never at any time, in any place where he needs salvation. Never. Can't be. It's impossible. So to reword this, Jesus Christ, pure God, pure goodness, has no possibility of the need of salvation. It's impossible for him to need salvation. 
and therefore it is impossible for him to be saved. He is salvation. He embodies salvation. Salvation does not apply to him in the sense that it applies to us. To say save yourself is what? Anthropomorphic. Not Christ-centric. It's a low value of Christ, not a high value of Christ. Therefore, to shout save yourself for Jesus Christ is perfect ignorance. And it's spectacular evidence of ignorance and evil. And when you say that he's, that he needs to be saved, you're saying that he has sin in him. And if Christ has sin, that he can't be omniscient, he can't be omnipresent, or he can't be omnipotent. Because total goodness, perfection, sinlessness requires that he knows all things. You can't have sinlessness unless you're omniscient. And if you're omniscient, then you therefore now, uh, omniscience is necessary for omnipresence. You can't be omniscient without omnipresence, and you cannot be omnipresent without all the power that's required, which is omnipotent. So those three are required for each one. Perfect goodness, total goodness requires knowing all things, and knowing all things requires being everywhere, and being everywhere requires absolute power. Got that? I hope you do. The presence of sin eliminates goodness, and therefore it eliminates all those attributes of godliness. So saying to Christ, save yourself, is a declaration that Christ is not God. And that's blasphemy. Okay? That's why it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself. Both are blasphemy. If is blasphemy, because he is. Save yourself is blasphemy. Next week I'll get into the last of that. And anybody who says that, what happens to them? As soon as you've been saying that, let's say you've been saying that for a couple hours now, screaming, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. If you are Christ, if you are God, save yourself. What's God do? Become the darkness. Shut you up. Total darkness. Utter black darkness. What is that? That's a symbol. That's a picture. You run out of time. Okay. Now, I'm going to leave you with this for next week. It's impossible for Christ to be saved. I said that 50 times. And next week, I'll explain the total meaning of Hebrews 5.7, where you might think it says something contrary to that. And once again, in there, as in everywhere, the ability is a key word. How much power is necessary to resurrect someone who is omnipotent? That's what's going on. In Hebrews 5, 7, the ability to resurrect an omnipotent God. How much power does that take? But to conclude today, it's also impossible. I'll leave you with this. It's impossible for God to be forsaken. What does forsaken mean? Abandoned. It's not only impossible to save Christ, it's also impossible for Christ to be forsaken by God. So obviously, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It can't be about him. Who is it about? Who is it directed to? And it's very important. The, the fact that he is omnipotent, how do you, and omnipresent, how can someone who is omnipresent ever be abandoned? Where do you go to abandon omnipresence? Why do we teach such stuff in the church? God had to turn his back and abandon his son. I heard that this week. A big, powerful pastor down in the States, quoted on all the news channels. This makes me want to go and barf. What to do? So I get mad at you guys and rant. It's not really your fault. You're kind of a stand-in for me. I'm I'm getting old now and crotchety, grumpy. The fact that Christ cannot be forsaken is precisely why he has the ability to be the one who saves. See, it explains why he's the saver. That's what he calls himself. I am the saver. Not the saved, I'm the saver. I'm the one that saves. You've confused me, you dummy, with the one who needs saving. Quit it. That's blasphemy. But the very fact that he cannot be forsaken because he's omnipresent is exactly the reason he has the ability to be the Savior. 
You have to be omnipresent to be the saver. You have to be omniscient to be the saver. You have to be omnipotent to be the saver. So, so it's wonderful that he can't be abandoned. He has to be unabandonable. That's the word. It will be next week. And that, by the way, explains the three hours of darkness. Because if Christ, if the darkness isn't for Christ, if Christ cannot be abandoned, then who can be abandoned? Got two choices. Angels can be abandoned. Humanity can be abandoned. Can Labrador retrievers be abandoned? No, they do not have the capacity to reject Jesus Christ. You have to have the free will capacity to reject God, to be abandoned. He, how does he abandon you? I say this a lot. There you are in the front row. Here is God. You are going that way. How does he abandon you? He stands still and lets you run. Can you cease to exist? No. You're immortal. You will survive physical death. Can you abandon God? No. He's omnipresent. You can't get away from Him, but you can reject Him, and He will let you. Darkness is coming for those who will not accept and believe, and God always warns. And how did He warn this time? He sent them utter darkness. That was a warning. What is a warning when God does it? Mercy. How long did they get? Three hours. Who was affected by it? The Romans. I got a thief on there that goes, I'm going a different direction. How, how many people got saved standing there? lot. Eventually, I'll make the case the majority of the Roman army does. What is that? He's going to go save the people that, that thought they were hurting him, that hated him. Ah, I think I'll save them. That is the character of God. Let's stand and be the same.